Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings in 2012, policymakers took a closer look at mental health services in the state, including ways to better serve young people. But a recent report by the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT, finds that more and more children and adolescents experiencing a mental health crisis are ending up in hospital ERs because families say they have no other options. Today we're going to talk about the problem with CHIT reporter Lisa Chetical. We'll also talk with medical professionals and parents about why previous plans by Governor Malloy and the Department of Children and Families have not adequately addressed a skyrocketing number of children in crisis who end up in hospital emergency departments. And later, we'll talk with a pediatric surgeon whose work led her to an amazing personal story. First, has your child been sent to the ER for a mental health-related emergency? What options would help your family when your loved one is experiencing a psychiatric crisis? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email live at wmpr.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome to the show Lisa Chetical, senior writer and co-founder of the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. So you recently reported on the number of child patients that were ending up in in local hospital ERs, uh, children that were experiencing uh, mental health emergencies. How big of a problem is this? Um, It seems pretty big. I had actually first uh, written about it three years ago, two years ago, um, when emergency rooms, uh, actually part of a a national trend, were seeing more and more kids showing up. And it was, it was then um, quite a, quite a big increase in Connecticut from like 2010 to 2014. And I checked back um, thinking that uh, it can't be getting much worse. And it turns out that it's uh, in the last three years gotten considerably worse. Uh, Yale has seen an 80, more than an 80% increase in visits, um, behavioral health visits to their ER, and uh, Connecticut children has seen a 32% increase, so it's it's just still going up. Now, I mentioned in the intro that after the, the Newtown uh, school shooting, that state officials, including Governor Malloy, were trying uh, to respond to this, and in 2014, there was a plan. Tell us about that plan and what ended up happening just a few li- few years later. Yeah, it was a sort of a two-part plan. There's a long-term children's behavioral health plan um, that's going to be unfolding over a series of years um, to try to sort of improve the whole infrastructure infrastructure of children's behavioral health. Um, Not so much designed to alleviate the emergency room crunch, but to switch from a sort of institutional care model to a community care model. But in October 2014, sort of in conjunction with that bigger plan, um, Governor Malloy and DCF, Department of Children and Families, um, issued sort of a shorter-term plan to try to address the um, emergency room um, influx of kids. And um, it looks like um, some of the ele- many, actually, of the elements of that plan either weren't put in place right away or um, 
have not been uh, put in place and don't look like they will. They did open up um, about 70 more respite emergency crisis beds throughout the state, but that didn't happen actually until last year. So there was a lag after that was announced. And some other elements of that um, ED plan um, for budget reasons have not seen fruition. One of them, one of them that was um, really embraced by advocates would have opened up um, these uh, behavioral health assessment centers so that instead of showing up to an ED, a parent could go to a regional um, assessment center and get directed to community services. And um, from what DCF says, um, that's right now with the budget um, situation that's cost prohibitive. prohibitive. So they, they have opened up some respite beds as of last, last year, and um, they are sort of um, building a community network, but for, um, for whatever reason, judging from these numbers, um, that ha- those things have not helped yet. Now, to give us a firsthand glimpse of, of what emergency departments in the state are experiencing, Dr. Claudia Moreno is joining us uh, now. She's medical director for psychiatric emergencies in the children's ED at Yale New Haven Hospital, and she's joining us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Dr. Moreno, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, we're talking about this uh, due to CHIT's recent report that's finding uh, local hospitals, including the one you work at, is seeing a huge increase in the number of young patients experiencing a crisis coming to the ER, uh, patients that are dealing with mental health emergencies. Walk us through that. What does that mean? I believe it, it continues to be a problem that is just increasing more and more because um, I think the plans of community services are just not being implemented fast enough. Um, I have some ideas of why the problem continues to be uh, so huge. Uh, and it's not an easy solution. We're talking about multiple factors. We're talking about access factors, socioeconomic factors, and just health system factors as a whole. Um, just to comment on some some ideas, the access is not only having the provider, but also getting it in a timely fashion. I find that um, the inequalities between coverage from commercial insurances and um, state insurance really makes it hard for um, middle class parents to get access to who have private insurance to get access to providers. Uh, commercial insurance don't seem to be credentialing new clinicians um, due to outdated provider panels. So we have parents calling uh, through the list and finding out that either the provider has left Connecticut, is no longer taking new patients, um, doesn't see children, sees only adolescents, that kind of thing um, is problematic. Also, the high deductibles that they have to meet and uh, the limited amount of coverage. Sometimes it's uh, you have a problem that takes months to be solved um, and you're getting only like six sessions covered by the plan. So you're saying that these families, uh, because they they may try to get care in the community, um, there may not be enough clinicians that that either are are in the state or taking new patients. But because there's a lack of community care options, these families feel like their last resort is taking their child to the ER when there's an emergency? Definitely. Um, So we do try to educate the families about the usage of 
EMPS uh, through 211. That's our emergency mobile psychiatric services that was implemented throughout uh, the whole of Connecticut. Um, but sometimes families feel that the crisis has climbed to a point that they really need to go to the emergency room. When that uh, happens, Dr. Moreno, um, there's obviously only so much room. So where do these children, where do they stay? So we try our very best to reconnect them again to someone in the community, uh, a provider or the EMPS, if they don't meet the criteria for hospitalization, which um, it can be very stringent when the resources are, the bed resources are limited. And we're talking about kids that are suicidal, homicidal, or really having a decrease in their ability to function in the community. Those are the kids that actually get the beds. And then the other kids that may still have very legitimate problems that are of concern um, need to be connected outside in the community. And sometimes we see them coming back because the connection um, fell through or the fa families weren't able to um, get the help that they need. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about an issue that's uh, facing emergency departments around the state when uh, children and adolescents experiencing mental health crises, uh, their families feel like they don't have anywhere to turn. They end up at emergency departments, which is not the best place for them. Um, uh, time in and time again. Uh, we're on the phone with, with us is Dr. Claudia Moreno. Actually, she's from the studios at Yale University, Medical Director for Psychiatric Emergencies in the Children's ED at Yale New Haven Hospital. On the phone, Lisa Chedical, Senior Writer and Co-Founder of the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. Now, Lisa, you have been reporting on this for some time. Oh, besides Yale New Haven Hospital, you know, what other hospitals are seeing this kind of increase? And when the the children are in the emergency department and there's no room for them, where do they end up being placed? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sort of biggest provider um, in Connecticut is Connecticut Children's Medical Center, which is, um, covers the, the Hartford area, which is also seeing huge increases. And they, they actually have expanded, as have other hospitals, expanded their ED bays to try to accommodate more behavioral health kids. But um, there are situations where um, kids are, uh, you know, on gurneys in the hallway um, or, um, you know, in, in rooms. I mean, basically, I think that the message to parents um, is that, at least from clinicians that I've talked to, is EDs are not a place to go get your kid behavioral health treatment. There's no treatment provided um, when you, when you uh, show up at an ED. They're basically stabilizing um, obviously, if there's uh, suicidal, homicidal, they're they're watching all the time. Um, but there's no there's no treatment. There's an assessment, um, and Dr. Marino can speak to that too. But the assessment is basically: can we send you home, or do we have to keep you in? Um, there's no there's no psychiatrist sitting down with your kid um, in in an emergency room visit and sort of figuring you know um, unraveling. Um, the psychiatric history, so it's a it's an assessment. The problem is because of the backlog, um, these kids are staying there 12 to 15 hours before they're even um, able to be assessed, and um, before clinicians can figure out whether they can go home or need a bed. Um, and in, in in a number of cases, I think 500 at least last year at Connecticut Children's Medical, they're staying multiple nights um, on a gurney on a mattress. Um, waiting to be assessed, waiting for a bed. 
Um, so sort of the, 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 the larger um, issue is why our parents, parents, it's parents and schools and community folks who are, who are referring these kids to, to the EDs, and why do they see that as the only option? Why don't they know about community services? Why aren't they using EMPS? Mm-hmm. Um, although that's the emergency mobile psychiatric services. They are, in fact, using that. Um, even though these numbers have skyrocketed at the hospitals, the EMPS system, which is um, parents, parents or community folks or schools can call 211 and actually get a mobile um, clinician out to out to uh, assess and um, and help a kid. Um, I think last year EMPS treated twelve thousand um, kids. So I mean that's at least that's at least taking some of the burden off the emergency rooms. But even with EMPS, um, the the emergency rooms are overwhelmed. So it's partly a problem of why aren't parents, schools, and other folks in the community. Um, why don't they know other options? Why aren't they calling two one one? Why aren't why don't they why aren't they talking to their pediatricians? Um, why aren't schools um, dealing with this in other ways? Now, Lisa, you also wrote about children on the autism autism spectrum disorder. They're also being sent to the ER. Um, can we talk a little bit about that that issue and what are some yeah. solutions? That's that's sort of a newer um, a sort of a newer twist in this is that. Um, the, from what the hospitals say, more and more kids with um, autism spectrum disorder and behavioral problems are sh- are showing up at the EDs um, from schools and and parents, um, and the, um, that's a different problem because a lot of those kids need specialized services. So the sort of respite emergency crisis beds that the state has opened up for kids to move kids out of the ED into like a three to five day stay. Are not are not sort of specialty autism um, programs. So, um, from what from Connecticut Children's Medical Center and, and some of the other hospitals say, um, they don't want to move those those kids into just emergency crisis beds because those kids need specialized care. Um, so those that's that's sort of um, adding to. Um, the, the behavioral health problem that, that more and more kids who need that specialty stabilization care are um, sitting in the EDs, waiting for beds, waiting for slots. I want to take a quick call. Anne's calling from Madison. Anne, you're on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to speak to what Dr. Moreno had mentioned about commercial insurance. Um, I'm the parent. I've had a daughter in the mental health system for, gosh, 15 years. And what uh, Dr. Marino mentioned was that the panels that have uh, are supposed to meet our needs, um, they delay, they deny, they don't exist. And we know that community-based services are our evidence-based models, but yet we can't seem to access them through the private insurance. And with my daughter, she was um, in the ER three times and then had to go into residential because we couldn't get the, the, the community-based services from the private insurance. However, we were then able to access state funding, even though we're a middle to upper middle class family. And at that point, the state came in and did in-home services, and our daughter did very well, and it was cost effective. So I just wanted to add, um, how do we hold our private insurance companies accountable? Because we have the best laws now. We have have that on the books. We have some great champions, but we can't, that's the population that seems to be unable to get services, in addition, of course, to everyone. This is a crisis. 
than it has been for 25, 30 years. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Yes, good question, and I'll let uh, Dr. Moreno respond. Obviously, her story is one you've heard many times. What, you know, what is the solution to help middle to upper middle class families who have the same needs? Well, I um, I really urge politicians and senators to really help us out with this one. Um, I think that as a clinician in the trenches, it's hard uh, for me to, you know other than participate in, in this kind of um, show and, and other interviews, it's hard for me to ab- advocate individually to get insurance companies to be accountable. But I know that we have an initiative here in Connecticut with uh, Beacon Health Options who created work groups uh, to address this pediatric behavioral health crisis. Um, and the work groups meet quarterly in in the New Haven area. It's the U- ED Youth Forum, and we have people in the table uh, ED people, DCF people, EMPS people uh, that are invested in making changes. But this is, again, from a husky state insurance standpoint. So I'm hoping commercial insurances will follow suit and get invested in this common goal and have such uh, meetings to collaborate. That's Dr. Claudia Moreno, Medical Director for Psychiatric Emergencies in the Children's Emergency Department at Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Moreno is going to stay with us. We're going to continue to take your calls and talk about this problem, including with a state legislator, that state representative Diana Urban from the Children's Committee. I want to thank Lisa Chetical, senior writer and co-founder for Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. We're going to link to her story on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Lisa, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Lucy. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about an issue that's been discussed before. Where can parents turn for help when their child is experiencing a mental health crisis? A recent report by CHIT finds local hospitals are seeing a staggering increase of kids in the ER due to their mental health needs. One of those hospitals is Yale New Haven. Since 2013, its emergency department has seen an 81 percent increase in these visits. Dr. Claudia Moreno is with us from the studios at Yale University. She's medical director for psychiatric emergencies in the children's ED at Yale New Haven Hospital. And joining our conversation now in studio is Maureen O'Neill Davis. She's a mother from Torrington and a legislative advocate for the Attachment and Trauma Network, also coordinator for Family Forward Advocacy Connecticut. Maureen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you have a daughter that's experienced many ED um, emergencies. Tell us about what your experience has been. The experience at the emergency departments um, has been mixed, mostly 24 to 48 hours um, sitting in the department waiting for assessment, waiting for the opportunity for a bed to open up somewhere. Um, There have been times when a bed has been identified and we've been able to get her somewhere for 10 to 12 days of a stabilization inpatient um, model of intervention. And then there have been times when no beds have been found and although she is not necessarily stabilized enough to come home, the emergency department recognizes that there's nothing more that they can do. And at that point, we are directed to take her home. Um, In those rare opportunities when it hasn't been in our best interest as a family or really her best interest as someone with a, a, 
a severe condition. We've opted not to bring her home. And at that point, of course, the Department of Children and Families gets involved, and you need to work with the department to identify what the next step is. We've talked a few times now about this plan in 2014. Governor Malloy responded when there was a um, attention on the fact that there were a lot of children, adolescents going to emergency departments who were in this kind of crisis. The plan with with the DCF was to help with more community care options, but you're not finding that that's um, something that's been helping your family? There there aren't a lot of options for you? A lot of those community plan options are um, more robust in the metropolitan areas than they are in the outlying areas. Um, And also, many of the community services models are great for kids with uh, mild to moderate conditions, but the more complex and more intensive need conditions are not met as, as well, as efficiently, as effectively in those community services models. A lot of these kids need um, more consistent, secure settings, um, not necessarily long-term, but sometimes for um, one to three months, um, a period of time that is really more treatment-oriented than it is stabilization-oriented. And those options are really not available to most families through uh, direct admission. And at that point, again, the Department of Children and Families as a gatekeeper to services and to the service array as it exists in our state is is where families are directed to go. Now, one of the um, programs out there, I know this is affiliated with Yale, according to CHIT, Dr. Moreno, is something known as ICAPS, or Intensive In-Home Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Services. Yale works with DCF um, with this this service. But according to CHIT, Dr. Moreno, that program has a four-week wait. So what's the solution? Yeah. Um, I Well, that's one of many programs, and, and I think it, it serves um, for a particular population. And the aim of that program, which is uh, six months o- uh, long, is to intervene with the family and the identified patient and hopefully um, prevent them from having to visit the emergency rooms or be readmitted. Um, it's a four-wait least co- uh, wait because there's so many people that need it. And the other uh, sad part of in Yale, um, we actually don't take a commercial insurance. There's other ICAPs in the rest of the state that do take commercial insurance. So now we're talking about um, most kids that get referred to our Yale ICAPs to be involved with DCF in some capacity, either voluntary services or through investigation and so forth. So definitely not the solution for New Haven in terms of in-home services alone because we don't have access for those um, families that don't get the voluntary services. So we're having families that have insurance, private insurance, that need this service that's not readily available because there's still a wait list, but they also have to apply for voluntary services through DCF. Otherwise, they won't get that, the treatment. This would be a good time to bring in the state legislator to the conversation. Again, State Representative Diana Urban. She represents Stonington, also co-chair of the General Assembly's Committee on Children. Representative Urban, thank you for coming on today. I'm really happy to be with you today. So this is not a new issue. How can the General Assembly better address this? Well, it certainly isn't a new issue. I was elected in 2000, and that was when the child advocate, Jeannie Milstein, and our Attorney General, then Dick Blumenthal, did a study 
where they said we were spending lots of money on mental health issues with our children, but we weren't getting good results. And they suggested, and I would repeat this, that the lessons learned were we needed intervention at the earliest possible moment and that we used to remove children from their families and communities. That was our system's default in treating mental illness. And the study said, no, no, no. We need services that focus on individual needs of children and their families and treat them within the social context in which they live. So these opportunities to intervene early in children's mental health, I believe, are being missed although we are making progress. And what I would bring up to uh, the other guests are the school-based health centers. School-based health centers see um, our children at the earliest possible time for mental health visits, and they eliminate that stigma. And I do think there's still a lot of stigma surrounding mental health and how children feel about making their needs known to their parents as well as to people around them. So we have... 90, over 90 school-based health centers, the mental health visits on those for the last time we have data. And I would say that the Committee on Children, we are the only state in the country that has our own Connecticut Children's Report Card, which is a database look at uh, decision-making for our kids. Representative um, Urban, I just, I'm sorry to interrupt because we're, we're short on time. Um, obviously, inter, in early intervention is important, but what about kids that are on the deep end of the system, people who have complex uh, mental health uh, issues, uh, children like uh, Maureen's? Where do they go for help? And I think that's one of the issues that we are desperately trying to tackle. And I think somebody brought up ICAPS. ICAPS has been amazingly effective, but it's extraordinarily expensive. And as we, took, as we look at some of the uh, lack of beds that we have, yet again, we're looking at resources that would need to be dedicated and not sure how we, make, we turn that curve in the General Assembly, recognizing the fiscal constraints that we have. But there's no question that we understand that we have got a crisis here. Let me have uh, Maureen O'Neill Davis respond. Again, she's a mother in Torrington, um, understands uh, what a lot of these families are going through. Well, from my family's standpoint, um, our daughter's conditions are rooted in complex uh, early childhood trauma, and the ICAPS model is ineffective and is also considered detrimental with uh, early childhood trauma cases. Um, So it's not a resource that makes a lot of sense for our family's needs. Um, I would like to say Dr. Moreno made a lot of good points relative to the middle-class families and the um, health insurance system, whereby it's very difficult to actually get to the services that you're looking for when you have private insurance. In our case, we had both private and public insurance for our daughter, and it made it um, doubly difficult. Um, But also speaking to how we're spending money as a state, Uh, Through the DCF model of response, it's really a parent punitive model of response. Uh, A lot of parents are directed there who are accustomed to reaching out directly for services through a direct admission, direct pay, insurance pay model. When you're directed to DCF voluntary services, you've now been directed to a government agency. And this government agency, acting in its role as a children's behavioral health leader, is actually a child protective service and they address the families that come in through the doorway of voluntary services in a very similar manner to those families brought to their attention through the child protection model. And that is not an effective model with 
parents who have worked for years uh, trying and trying a variety of different services to meet their children's needs, and they're looking to now try a new path of funding to get to those next-level services. Um, it, it's a difficult road. I want to take a call now. Stephanie's calling from Watertown. Stephanie, you're on the show. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much. Go ahead. We're short Hi. on time. Stephanie, Can you hear go, me okay? yeah, go ahead. Okay, um, I'm a mother to a, a severely nonverbal autistic child. Um, we've been using the ER because we've been ordered by uh, pediatricians, EMPS, um, oh, geez, even the schools. We've gone to the ER about nine times. Um, we've waited about five days, and we've been to New Hampshire, Hampstead Hospital, twice. Um, we waited five days for that bed in an emergency room situation when they couldn't do anything. Uh, basically, it was within 24 to 48 hours. She was sent home with more medications and usually, you know, something to settle her, and we'd go home. Uh, they would try to put safety plans in place, um, stuff like that. At some point, the pediatrician even told us to call the police, where they came involved to get an ambulance to take her. Um, it's been a revolving door for us, uh, nonstop. We do have insurance. It's covered quite a bit of stuff for us. Uh, but we've been on wait lists, and we've had no other options. We've also had DCF interference um, because at one point we didn't know what to do. They said take her home. We weren't really sure about, you know, taking her home and the safety of our other children and the medications and not putting on a lot of medications. We've had the state come in. ICAPS was definitely a no for us. We, we weren't, you know, able for all these programs, and we were on wait lists for BCBAs and all of that. I think it was about three years to get anywhere. Um, so we've been in the revolving door system for quite a long time. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for sharing your story. I want to get one more call in. Uh, Shana from Hartford, you're on. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm also a parent. Uh, my name is Shana, and my daughter is actually in the emergency department at CCMC right now. Um, we've had um, nearly 40 days in and out of the emergency department. Uh, Tierra also is deaf, and what I wanted to point out is that I know that in Connecticut, you know, we're, we're trying, we're doing what we can to support um, all children. Um, part of the issue that I'm experiencing is that given the level of disabilities that my daughter has, she's deaf, but she also has multiple disabilities on top of that. And so when you, you speak of, you know, programs like ICAPS, which are wonderful, they don't really work when it, you know, it's not a, a great placement for Tierra per se. And so we, you know, we have some services, but again, we run into issues with insurance um, because the school that, you know, and the, and the location that would be would best fit Tierra, our struggle is trying to get services for her there so that we can at least have a, you know, a 45-day diagnostic. She's at a, you know, an age where, you know, biologically she's changing, uh, you know, she's presenting with different behaviors, so we have to assess her uh, differently, but we're unable to do that in, in the home. Oh, Shana, Shana can you hear us? The emergency room. She's been in there nearly 40 days um, between October and February, and and as a mom, you know, the most that I can do is continue to, to, to ask for help and to continue to ask, you know, everyone to listen and try to address our kids because we're really not meeting those needs of the parents who, again, as Maureen said, you know, when you ask for voluntary services, 
you know, it's DCF is there as a, as a protection. We're parents who are proactive. We're trying to find resources for our, parents, for our children. We want them to be integrated into the community. But when that is not possible, when we've exhausted all efforts, when we've gone to every length, when we've testified at the legislative office building, you know, when we've talked to, you know, and met with people and, and tried to come up with different plans and meet opposition each time because there's not funds there or whatever the case may be, because even with EMPS services, which I just utilized this weekend, part of the issue was interpreting for my daughter. And so, you know, when you're dealing with each case, it's really, you know, important that we look at each child and not group them all together because each child has a really specialized set of needs that we have to then have some sort of oversight, as Dr. Rogers um, said in the article, that that's important so that we're not, you know, making all these kids go to one area or one place, that we're really meeting those needs. My family, we are struggling. There are two other children in the house that have to consider their safety as well. And um, I just want us to continue to look at how we're servicing our children and where we're placing them and why they're not getting the placement that they're getting. Because right now, my daughter, my daughter's still suffering in the mm. ER. Well, Shannon, still sitting there. Let's have uh, Representative Urban respond. Again, she's a co-chair of the Children's Committee. Obviously, Representative Urban, a lot of families feel frustrated. Any solutions this legislative session to help um, these families? Well, you know, as I, as I had mentioned to you already, we are fully aware of this. We, tra- we track the data, and right now we're looking at suspension and expulsion numbers in preschool. Uh, it's, it's a problem that's not just unique to Connecticut. It seems to be a national problem with mental health. And we are reaching out to as many organizations, the National Caucus of State Legislators, what kind of studies are out there. We certainly have Yale. We have UConn. And we're trying to deal with this yet again within constrained resources. And that is what is so difficult and heartbreaking for us on the Committee on Children to see what kind of choices can we make to answer these dire circumstances that are being presented to us. Well, Representative Urban, again, thank you for joining us today. She's co-chair of the Children's Committee. And before we um, end the segment, I wanted to turn back to Maureen O'Neill Davis, a, a Torrington mother. You're obviously you're a legislative advocate, so you know how to, to speak to uh, people in power within the General Assembly. You know how to advocate for families. What do you want to see the General Assembly do? Well, there, we've offered a number of solutions through Family Forward Advocacy Connecticut to address um, both from a no-cost standpoint and possibly from a standpoint of the state continuing to receive Title IV-E funding, which is a foster care uh, reimbursement fund. It's an uncapped fund. The state has looked to maximize the flow of revenue from Title IV-E uh, into its general fund for years. One of the ways you do that is to bring children into state custody, um, and children with specialized needs um, do generate a, a higher amount of funding on an annual basis. We believe that if we can continue having those funds flow to the state while parents maintain custody of their kids, maintain decision-making over mental health, behavioral health, and other basic needs, um, you get the best of both worlds. And at the end of the day, the cost to the department is less but the revenue they are generating when kids do come into custody remains unchanged. Uh, That would allow the department to act as a conduit to ensure funding is available to meet the higher needs of these kids and that families remain, um, strong integrity remains intact, um, meeting the children's needs and uh, making sure that we have a healthier society here. 
Well, we've talked about this issue before, and we'll probably talk about it again in the future. But I thank you, Maureen O'Neill Davis from Torrington, again, coordinator for Family Forward Advocacy Connecticut. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Also, thanks to Dr. Claudia Moreno, again, medical director for psychiatric emergencies in the Children's Emergency Department at Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Moreno, thank you so much for giving us your perspective. Thank you. And thanks also to State Representative Diana Urban. Uh, after the break, we hear uh, pediatric surgeons, how we hear how a pediatric surgeon's work, rather, led her to make a life-changing decision. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, in 2003, Connecticut U.S. Marine Michael Zakea had a job to do in Iraq, train the first Iraqi Army battalion after the U.S. disbanded the country's military post-invasion. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with Zakea, whose new book, Ragged Edge, details the challenges leading a diverse group of Iraqis. We'll ask him, what should the U.S. learn from a war that still continues today? That's tomorrow on Where We Live. Now we're turning our attention to a physician whose work led her to a life-changing moment. In studio with me now is Dr. Christine Fink, Surgeon-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford. Dr. Fink, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I understand as a surgeon you work with babies born with a condition known as esophageal atresia. Tell us about that. What does that mean? Sure. Esophageal atresia uh, affects 1 in 2,500 live births, and about 15 to 20 percent of those, you can't get the two ends of the esophagus together. As you know, the esophagus is the conduit that brings food from your mouth to your stomach. And although it seems like it's very simple, it does have a complex design, and it's very important so that babies can eat and live a, a normal, healthy life. So, yes, we do see see that pretty frequently. I've never heard of that before, but you've mentioned this is something that happens um, more frequently. So what's the treatment? What's the process to, to help these babies? So the majority of the time, it's surgical treatment. And like I said, you want to bring the two ends of the esophagus together. There are other surgical um, uh, paradigms that you can use if you can't bring the two ends together, and that's sort of what the focus of my research is on, um, and creating synthetic scaffolds and uh, stem cells that can be used to recreate the esophagus um, to help these babies. You're working with Yukon researchers on this? Correct. And how long have you been doing that? Uh, for the better part of five to 10 years. At this point, we started with tissue engineering, looking at the lung, and the esophagus was a natural extension. And you're a pediatric surgeon, so how did you get into this line of, of treating babies? Sure. So I... Uh, as a pediatric surgeon, you're trained in adult um, medicine first, adult surgery, and then I did my uh, fellowship in Arkansas Children's. And at Arkansas Children's, we were a very busy uh, center, and there is where I first got exposed to uh, things that led to my research, such as esophageal atresia and tissue engineering. Um, at the time of my fellowship, I don't want to date myself, but that was back in 2000, <laughs> um, Jay Vacanti was a, a big tissue engineer, and he was my idol. And so I did come up to Massachusetts and uh, visit his lab and learn some tissue engineering approaches from him. And from that, it just naturally became an extension, and it was something that I've been focusing uh, my career on. So once these babies have treatment, you know, what are the um, consequences as they grow and what kind of uh, treatment they may need um, in the future? Sure. So these children do are affected for, for their life uh, when they're born with this condition, especially when they have the long gap and you can't bring the two ends together. Uh, typically, they all have uh, problems with reflux, difficulty eating. They have to cut their foods very, very small. Um, and they, they, the nice thing for me is that I get to see them yearly to make sure that they're growing and uh, doing well. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm talking with Dr. Christine Fink. She's a pediatric surgeon in chief at CCMC in Hartford, and she's been working with Yukon researchers to find a new treatment to help babies born with a defect where the tube between the mouth and stomach fails to connect. Uh, one of the reasons we brought you on, besides talking about um, the research, is um, some life-changing moments uh, during uh, your course of work that helped motivate you in your career. Um, first, tell us about some personal losses that you've experienced and then uh, the um, the decision to make a very life-changing moment throughout the course of your work. Sure. Um, so I always knew when I was growing up that I was going to be a doctor, and I always figured I was going to be a surgeon. Um, and you concentrate so hard on your studies and working very hard to get to where you are. And then a life-changing moment did come when I was a surgical resident, and my husband was diagnosed with um, cancer. And at that time, it was very different because you're working so hard on medicine, and you're seeing it from the physician perspective. Um, but then being on the receiving end of that kind of news and going through the treatments um, and stuff like that, it really was life-changing. But I think it also adds to the fact that you can be much more empathetic and understand what others are hearing uh, from you when you give bad news. Um, so I think that that changed it. Um, I always knew that I loved children, and so it was a natural um, course for me to pursue pediatric surgery. Uh, and, you know, over the course of my first job, I worked at St. Chris in Philadelphia, one of my patients was born with a medical condition that was not um, uh, that was very difficult and led for her to be in the hospital for the first year of her life. And at that time, she just didn't have a mom to take her home, and so we ended up adopting her. So, wow! So you adopted someone that you took care of yep. for over a year. Yep. How did your family react to the news the one day that you said, "I want to take this baby yeah. home"? <laughs> um, it was actually a very joyous occasion. My whole family came to support um, the decision, and I, re I remember we brought her home on Valentine's Day. So it was wonderful. And um, her birthday was on February 21st. So she turned one um, when she finally was in a real home, her forever home. Um, she looks just like me. She acts just like me. So I think it was meant to be. And I think sometimes things like this happen. Um, to, they bring p people into your life and that they change your life forever. So she changed my, my current husband's and my life forever. And um, I would never do it. At, I would never not do it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It was something that, that was totally worth it. Take us back to that moment. So you took care of this this baby who now mm -hmm. is your daughter uh, for over a year. Obviously, you um, developed a relationship with her birth sure. mother. When the time came to decide uh, where her future uh, was going to be, tell, tell us about that conversation you had. Well, I think the birth mother had the true love for her daughter because she knew she couldn't take care of her. Um, she was very young. She um, just graduated high school. And she wanted something better for her child than what she could give. And I think um, looking back now, the maturity that this woman displayed uh, was amazing. We still are friends, and I do keep her updated on to my daughter's uh, progress. Um, and I remember her sitting in my office and her telling me that she was hoping that I could take Isabel home because that would be the best for her. Mm. That must have really struck a, a, a obviously yeah. struck a nerve with you that mm -hmm. you took her took her home and she became uh, your daughter. So twelve years ago this month. Yep. We mentioned the research that you did earlier um, in the segment. Uh, tell us how soon you may be seeing more developments, or and how this could help this condition that is very common among babies. Sure. So I think um, in the adult world we'll be seeing some of the scaffolding and stem cell. Uh, treatment for uh, patients that have esophageal cancer or dysmotility or abnormal movement of the esophagus a bit quicker than we will see it in kids. Um, but And I think that that's coming within the next several years. 
uh, with the children. I know that the the um, science that we're doing, the technology we're developing, is is very reproducible and very good. So I imagine in the next five to ten years that there will be some application. We'll we'll start transplanting some of these uh, tissue grown regenerated um, scaffolds into children. Is it an issue for um, parents to access this type of treatment when their babies are born with this condition? I think, uh, you know, a public awareness of just the amazing stuff that's going on at Connecticut Children's and the research, as well as around the country, but specifically at UConn Health and Connecticut Children's, we are really pushing the frontiers of stem cell research and tissue engineering. Um, and so it's very uh, accessible if they know to look on the website and stuff like that. And like I said, you know, I'm always available. If anybody has any uh, questions or thoughts or, you know, needs, please don't hesitate to send me an email. So More we'll than happy to respond. We'll make sure that we, uh, we link to some contact information for Dr. Uh, Christine Fink again. Now, you said that um, some of the personal experiences you've had have, have impacted how you relate to um, patients' families. Talk a little bit more about that, because sometimes we hear um, the encounters sometimes with physicians sure. where it's very uh, textbook, and families want to feel like there's a connection to make sure that that person that's taking care of them or their family really understands where they're coming from. And I mean, that's not something that's that's um, uh, you're taught in school. It's something that you learn as you uh, continue your career, and, and that's not something that a lot of people um, have. So tell us how you are able to connect with that family, um, and what have you heard from people when they they understand that you understand their personal their personal concerns? Sure, um, I do think that um, first of all, once I became a mother, it was also very different. Um, I always swore that God didn't give me children until after I became a pediatric surgeon, mainly because I think the emotion of it and understanding what this parent or family is going through is significant. Uh, I know that I have a lot of uh, families that I've taken care of, even back to when I was in fellowship to St. Chris to here, that still follow me and I'm still close with their families because once you impact a child's life, it's forever. And I think that that just goes to the heart of what we do. The majority of pediatric surgeons really do take it to heart taking care of families and can connect with the families because there's a reason we went into this profession. And it can be one of the worst moments when you just, you know, you've had a baby and you're thinking about all the promise uh, that their life holds. And then you realize that there's a serious health problem. You want somebody that responds uh, to that moment of crisis in a compassionate way. Sure. And I think the one thing that we offer is that the majority of children do get better and do do fine. And that the one thing that I want to impart to parents when I meet them is that we will always be there for them. And together we will go through the journey. It's not exactly what they expected, but we try to give them that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we will help them through the process. And that's important because the birth mother of of your daughter, she felt that she didn't have the support to take care of her. And that's something that you don't want to have other people experience. Oh, correct. Um, And like I said, I think it was the best thing that happened to my family. First of all, adopting Isabel and the best thing probably that happened to her. And I think that, you know, we're only at the beginning of our journey. She's only 12 and there's a whole life ahead of her. And I do imagine a time where she will meet the birth mom and, you know, become part of that family as well. Um, and, And it's a learning experience for me as well. And you have two biological children? I do. And they all get along. <laughs> they do. Well, okay. Depends on the day. <laughs> um, and you mentioned that groundbreaking research that's being done at UConn. So are you seeing babies from across the country, um, families that are contacting you? 
Sure. Um, we do get some, uh, you know, national referrals for this type of work. And in addition, I do get a lot of calls uh, on a monthly basis for adults that are suffering similar types of problems, asking what resources there are. Um, and I'm working hard with some of my adult colleagues at the Mayo Clinic to try to help, you know, steer some of them to um, groundbreaking uh, technology that can be better for their quality of life in some life-saving instances. You mentioned quality of life. Your daughter still needs a lot of medical attention? She does. She does. Um, she was born with her bowels were not um, completely formed right, and so she lost a majority of her intestine. Um, and so we still have some short gut, we call it, issues that we deal with. But overall, she's, she's doing great. And who are you partnering with with this uh, groundbreaking research? So we partner with BioStage, which is out of uh, Massachusetts. Um, and they're a, a technology company, and they provide all of our scaffolding material um, and help us fund some of our research. You seem like a very passionate uh, physician, and it's obviously a pleasure to have you here in studio with us. Anything else that you want to tell us about um, how your personal experiences have shaped the work you're doing as a surgeon at Connecticut Children's Medical Center? So I want to just say that for my personal experiences and everything, I'm just very fortunate to be able to do what I do. It's something I love to do. So, you know, I'm one of the few people that uh, gets up before the alarm in the morning um, and uh, gets into work. And you must be a great mentor for all those other uh, young <laughs> surgeons and uh, coming up. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Christine Fink, Surgeon-in-Chief at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford. And we'll uh, make sure that we tweet out and the, the contact information for families who are interested in learning more about the research you're doing. Thank you very much. The show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. And our executive producer at WMPR is Katie Tolarski. To learn more about our show, go to WMPR.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.